If you've got a Bible, open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to read verses beginning in verse 9 down through verse 12. We looked at the first couple of verses in that paragraph last week, unpacked those together. This week we'll unpack the latter two verses there, verses 11 and 12, but we'll read the whole text together this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 9, the Apostle Peter writes these words. It'll be on the screen for you if you don't have a copy in front of you as well. He writes, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Uh, last week we took a look at verses 9 and 10 and we talked a lot about our ident- identity and some of the implications that come out of that. This week we're going to look at verses 11 and 12, and I think what Peter has to say to us here in particular is that, listen, it's not only that we are the church, that we are these sojourners, or that we are these exiles, that we've been given this identity by God, but there is a certain way in which now we should conduct ourselves and live on account of who we are. And so that's what we want to drill down into this morning, and uh, we're going to go ahead and jump right in because we've got a long way to go and a short time to get there, okay? Uh, so what does it look like to be the church in our culture? What does it look like to live as a sojourner? That's what Peter says to us first and foremost right out of the gate. He appeals to our identity as sojourners or as exiles as he then issues some commands or some things that we are to do, some shoulds based on some ours in the text, He says that what we are called to do as Christians who have passed over from death to life, who have crossed over from darkness to light, those whom God has called out of darkness and into his marvelous light, that we should live, he says, as a sojourner, live like a sojourner. Now, we've talked about being a sojourner before, that we are sojourners, that we aren't We aren't uh, tourists who are just kind of trying to enjoy all the good things this life has to offer while we're on the way to the next life, nor are we citizens who take our cues on our values from this culture, but we're like resident aliens who are living here on a temporary status while we wait for our true homeland. The Apostle Paul writes about this in the book of Philippians as well, as he talks about our citizenship not being here on earth but in heaven, and we await a savior from there. And so Peter says that we should not just be sojourners, but there should be actually conduct that flows out of that identity that we have as an exile, that flows out of that identity that we have as a sojourner. But before we get to what that that conduct should look like, I just want to remind you of the fact. I mean, this is really important because there are some of us in here this morning who perhaps have been in churches before where all you ever heard week after week after week after week was the shoulds of the Bible. And you never heard the R's of the Bible. In fact, if you look in what Peter says here, that the you should is built on the you are. Okay? If you go back to what we saw last week, if you look at Paul's letters, it's why he writes this way. And all across the main shape of the Bible, you see this everywhere. The you shoulds are always built on the you are's. 
In fact, you go back into the Old Testament and you see this. Whenever God rescues and ransoms his people out of Egypt, out of bondage and slavery and captivity, he doesn't come to them in Egypt and say, here's the you shoulds, and if you keep the you shoulds, then I will make you the you ours. No, he comes to them in Egypt and says, you are my people. That I've, and I'm going to rescue you from slavery and bondage and captivity. And then they get on the other side of Egypt, on the other side of the sea. And then, then he gives them the you shoulds, right? So the imperatives, the commands of Scripture are always based on the indicatives or the basis, baseline reality of who we are. It's exactly what Peter says here. right? You go back into verses 9 and 10. Is the you are versus 11 and 12, you should. There's that pattern everywhere in scripture. So Peter says, because you are a chosen race, because you are a people who have been stitched together from all the kinds and peoples and races on the face of the earth, a chosen race, that God has brought people from all tribes and tongues and languages and he ransomed them by the blood of Christ to bring them into the church. This is who you are. That you are a royal priesthood. You've been given access to God. The ultimate inner ring. So you don't have to kind of clamor to get into all the other inner rings around you in your vocation or in your neighborhood or in your community. You've been given access to God. You were once shut out of Eden. Now you've been let back into it because of Christ. If you're in him. And not only do you have access to God, but you should be accessible to people because you have all this freedom from being, having access to God that you should reach a hand back to people and be accessible to them. This is who you are, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. We talked about last week, we're not a subculture. It's not like going from the, the bowling league to the archery range. It's not like going from the running club to the fishing club. It's like moving from Argentina to Russia or from China to Canada. Completely different cultures and the way they view everything in life. A holy nation. This is who you are. A people for God's own possession, his treasured possession of all the peoples on the face of the earth. And there's great security in that. We talked about last week. All the you are's. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation. You are a people for God's own possession. So you should live as a sojourner. Right? All the you shoulds of the Bible are always built on the you are's. And in lots of churches, all you've ever heard, perhaps, is the you shoulds of the Bible. In fact, that's why some of the you shoulds for you have never stuck. Because you've never seen who you are. You've never come to wrestle and come to grips with your identity in Christ. And so all the you shoulds just sound like rules and regulations that you have to keep without ever seeing the you are's and what God has done to bring you into relationship with himself. The you shoulds will never stick. But they stuck in the early church. They stuck in the early church because the early church wrestled with and, and God gave grace for them to understand who they were in Christ. If you are in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And out of the you are should flow the you shoulds. And they did in the early church. They lived like sojourners. They lived like exiles in the early church. It was a letter in the second century AD, a letter to Diognetus, an ancient document. And in that document, the author writes about the distinctives of Christian community and the church as it existed in the world as sojourners. 
want you to listen to some of what he says this morning. In chapter 5, verse, beginning in verse 1 of that letter, he says, For Christians are not distinguished from the rest of mankind, either in locality or in speech or in culture or in customs. For they dwell not somewhere in cities of their own. Listen, what he's saying is this. They're not, they didn't remove themselves from the culture and from the cities and go create a compound somewhere out on the skirts of society and become kind of cultish. They continued to live in, uh, amongst the peoples that they had come out of. He says, it goes on and says, but while they dwell in cities of Greeks and barbarians as the lot of each is cast, in other words, wherever they were born, they didn't withdraw from society and from culture. And they followed the native customs and dress and food and other arrangements of life. Yet the constitution of their own citizenship, which they set forth as marvelous and confessedly contradicts expectation. You would think someone who bowed their knee to another emperor wouldn't honor the one who was on the throne in Rome. <laughs> That's not what he's going to tell us next week. He goes on to say, they dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. They bear their share in all things as citizens, and they endure all hardships as strangers. Every foreign country is a fatherland to them, and every fatherland is foreign. I love the way he says that. I love the way he says that. Every foreign country is a fatherland. They come from all over the place. But every homeland is not their home. Every fatherland is not their home because they're living like sojourners. They didn't remove themselves from culture. They didn't remove themselves from society. They continued to live amongst it as sojourners and exiles to where when people saw their lives, it says they, their, 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 their citizenship was set forth marvelous, confessedly contradicts expectation. You wouldn't think that these people who said they're honoring this other God or this other king than we've ever known before would live as such good citizens of the society in which they continue to remain apart. He says, man, they blew away expectations by the way they conducted themselves because they understood who they were. They lived like sojourners. Now let's get real practical this morning because I think Peter does as well. What does that look like when it gets flushed out into life to really live like a sojourner, to live in this fatherland as if it were foreign to us? What does that look like? First thing that it looks like that Peter tells us is this, is it looks like that we live where, live like there is more than this world. We live as if, we live like there is more than this world. Listen, there's a tension in this text that every sojourning Christian feels in their life, or they should feel in their life. If they understand who they are, there'll be a tension in their hearts, there'll be a tension in their minds, there'll be a tension in their souls if they're living Right? If they're living the shoulds out of the R's. There's a tension for every single one of us, and it is this. That we live in this world, but to live like a sojourner, we must live like there is more than this world. We must live like every fatherland is foreign to us, even though that's where we come from. And that's where we were raised. It's foreign to us. In other words, for a sojourning Christian, there are different priorities for life than the greater surrounding culture that are projected off of a different cornerstone. If you go back further up in the text, this is so beautiful. If you go back further up in the text, Peter in chapter two talks about how Christ has been set as the cornerstone for our lives. 
And there were a couple of things in the ancient um, construction techniques that the cornerstone did. It provided, it was the strongest stone all the construction because all the weight ultimately came to rest back upon it. But it was also the truest, most square stone in all the course of the construction because the lines of every other stone connected to it were projected off of it. And so if the cornerstone was not square, the building would not be square. And so Christ, he says, is our cornerstone, a true cornerstone that's been laid in Zion. And every other life, every other stone that's been connected to him, the lines are projected off of him. And he says, if you're going to live like a sojourner and live like there is more than this world, then the lines of your life have to project off of the cornerstone of Christ. Have to project off the cornerstone of Christ. So when there's a conflict between the culture of this country in which we live and the country for which we long, some of you are going to get that on the way home. All right. When there's a conflict between the culture in which we live and the culture for which we long, Peter says the culture for which we long, the country for which we long, should win out every single time, eventually emerge victorious without exclusion. Without exclusion. Now, I didn't say it would emerge victorious without a fight. <laughs> right? And sometimes it's kind of like a little schoolyard fight, okay, where you got these two little dudes, like eight years old, and they're just kind of punching it, and they're like two shots landing, and it gets broken up, and they're all sitting in the principal's office crying, I'm so sorry, I recall parents, they all get involved. Right, a little schoolyard fight. Sometimes that's kind of what it is. It's not a whole really big deal. But sometimes the fight, sometimes the fight, it's like a 12-round cage match filled with blood and sweat until eventually, eventually somebody taps out. See, the fight is real. The fight is real. That's why Peter says, I urge you, I urge you, I'm appealing to you to abstain from the passions of the flesh because the fight is real. Now listen, whenever you hear that word, that language, passions of the flesh, most oftentimes, here's what we think of. We think of doing bad things, right? All the bad things that people out there do. That's typically what we think of when we read that terminology, the passions of the flesh. Some of your translations worded as sinful desires. The desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, the, desire, the sinful desires that wage war against our soul. But the passions of our flesh in this text, listen, the word underneath that is the word epithumia in Greek. And the word thumia means desire. The word epi means inordinate or in excess. Or over. So you put those two things together, right? You got the prefix and the root. You got thumia, desire, epi, over. And what Peter is talking about here, and this shows up through Paul's writings and all across the New Testament, he's talking not necessarily about doing bad things or wanting bad things. What he's talking about is an over desire, an inordinate desire, an excessive desire, even for good things because you've probably found this to be true in your life, as I have in mind, is that whenever you have an over, when you have an over-desire, an excessive desire, an inordinate desire, even for good things, sometimes, oftentimes, it leads you to do bad things to get them or keep them. It leads you to lead very destructive lives in order to acquire them and hang on to them. It may, it may not be that what you're desiring or wanting is inherently in and of itself evil or bad. It may be that you want it so desperately and so deeply that you're willing to do anything to get it. 
these epi-desires, these over-desires, these inordinate and excessive desires in our lives is what Peter's talking about here. Look, let me give you a couple of illustrations of what this looks like. All right, this is why some of us in the room, maybe some of us that we know are house poor. Okay? House poor. What, is it, what does the word house poor mean? It means that you've leveraged so much of your worldly goods and resources to get into a home that would give you a particular comfort level or status within our society, right? That you really have no margins left financially because you've leveraged everything for this particular dream home, either that you've bought or that you've built. And so you're house poor. Right? You can make your payment on your mortgage every month, but you can't really do much else. So when needs arise in the people's lives that you're closer connected to or in the community in which you live, man, initially you feel this, this, this kind of eruption in your heart. You go, I want to move out towards that and assist in some way. And then you go, I can't because I don't have any margins. Financially, to be able to give towards those needs. Why? Is it a bad thing to want a roof over your head? Not at all. Not at all. But listen, for some of us, there are over-desires that have run rampant within our soul. And so that we have leveraged more than we should for a house too big for us with more room than we need. That's how it gets worked out in your life sometimes. Right? Is it a bad thing to want to feel acceptance Absolutely not. To want to be, to have an intimate relationship with someone. No. To be known and to know. Absolutely not. But listen, some of you are crossing boundaries that God has established. And you're crossing outside of the confines of covenant relationship between one man and one woman for one lifetime. And you're entering into sexual unions with people. Or perhaps you have entered into sexual unions with people because you want to be accepted and you want to be loved and you want to be received. And you want to have that knowledge of someone. You want them to have that knowledge of you. And you want that so desperately. And it's a good thing that God has wired in, hardwired into creation to be enjoyed in the bonds of covenant marriage. And yet whenever you step outside of that, it's because oftentimes you want that acceptance, you want that intimacy so badly that you're willing to do anything to get it or to keep it. This is why some of us are house poor. This is why some of us compromise our convictions for companionship. This is why, right, these over-desires, it's why some of us are kind of beauty broke. <laughs> right? We're house poor and beauty broke. Sorry, ladies. Right, this is why some of us go to the store and we shop incessantly, whether it be dudes or chicks, right? It can fall on both sides of the coin. Right, we shop incessantly for, for more clothes, right? Because fall, fall fashions are out. Now it's winter, spring fashions. I got to get my wardrobe updated for those. And we have 100 shoes in our closet, and yet we still have to have another pair because we don't have anything that goes with that particular outfit, Right? Or we've got all these tools in our shop or all these guns in our safes. But man, we gotta have another one. I mean, who, 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 can't, who can't live with like 17 guns? Why do I need 18? I gotta have 18, 19, 20. Right? There's an over desire for some of the things of this world. Andy Mineo is a Christian hip hop artist, and he says in one of his songs, I think he diagnoses our problem spot on when he says this. And listen, he says it a lot cooler than I can say it, so I'm not even gonna try. Listen to what he says. He says, look, we're in, love, we're in love with the invention. We don't love the inventor. 
To say it in other ways, to say we're in love with creation. We don't give any attention or regard to the creator. We love the gifts, but we don't love the giver. And because there's such an inordinate desire for the gifts, for the inventions, for creation in our lives, it leads us at times to do things that are destructive in order to get or keep whatever it is that we're wanting and longing for. This is why some of us eat too much and eat too little. Right? Because some of us eat too much because we're in love with food, right? Man, I, I'm just going to go ahead and pass right by that. We, 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 because I have to make a confession if I wait, if I wait into that. Right. I love food, man. I love, I love food. I love good food. We had cooked a great meal at the house last night as a family. It was a great deal, man. I love food. Some of us love food a little too much. And some of us love our image a little too much is why we don't eat enough or we throw up what we do eat in order to maintain a particular figure. Is it a bad thing to want to be healthy? No, but whenever it leads you to do destructive things to your body in order to achieve that particular look that you want. Listen, we can go a million directions with this this morning. But Peter says, Peter says, if you're going to live like a sojourner, a part of what that means is living as if there is more than this world. More than this world more than what you can touch, more than what you can taste, more than what you can see, more than what you can experience with your five senses in this life. It means that you begin to go to war against these desires that are warring against you. That's why Peter says it's a fight, right? Because these desires, these epi over desires, they are not neutral in your life. Have you found that to be true? They are not, they're not like the Switzerland of desires. They're not neutral in the conflict, right? They're trying to advance and take ground in your life. So why some of us get so wrapped up in relationships that are unhealthy for us because we want to be accepted so bad that we can't say no. They're going to war against your soul. They're fighting against you. So he says, you got to abstain from them, put distance between yourself and them. you got to eventually fight it back against them because they are not neutral. They are not neutral. And if you yield to them and yield to them and yield to them and yield to them, if you never learn to say no, if you never learn to say no to desires of the flesh, to over desires, maybe desires for good things, but inordinate desires that you're willing to do anything to get or keep, if you never learn to say no to that, eventually it will destroy you. It will ruin you. And you will wake up in your 30s or in your 40s or in your 50s or in your 60s with a life that has been littered with all kinds of shrapnel and carnage and destruction because you never, you never began to live as if there was more than this world. You never begin to set your affections upon the inventor and not just the invention, upon the creator and not just creation, upon the giver and not just the gifts. And I could, we could keep going, <laughs> but we ain't done yet, so we got to move on. Second, second thing that Peter says, if we're going to live like a sojourner, if we're going to live like a sojourner, we got to live not only as if there's more than this world, but we got to live like a missionary in this world. we got to live like a missionary in this world. In verse 12, Peter refers, um, he says this in verse 12, if you go back into the text, 
He's going to say, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter says, listen, there's a particular way that you live. There's a particular way that you live, and you live as a missionary in this world, living as if there is more than this world. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles Honorable. Another way to translate that word, in fact, it's a synonym in, in, in the Greek language, is as beautiful. Live such beautiful lives, such admirable lives, such honorable lives, such good lives, some of your translations say. And where do you live? Then there's a quality of life that you're to live that's beautiful and attractive, and it's, 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 it's good and honorable. There's a quality of life, but there's also a locality for that life. And he says it's to be lived among the Gentiles. And in this text, the Gentiles refer to those people who are apart from God, who were once not a people like we were once not a people, who were once not received mercy like you and I had once not received mercy, that we were to live these kinds of lives like a missionary among people, among the Gentiles, is what Peter says. We're to live like a missionary. And you're to live a beautiful life, an honorable life, a noble life, an excellent life among them. See, what Peter is saying is this. That if you're going to live like a sojourner, that what it's going to entail for you in the context of your living is that you're going to live among people to the degree that they are able to see your character and your conduct. They've got a window into your character and your conduct because you're not removed or isolated from them, but you have an integration with them to the degree that they can begin to see the way that you make decisions. They can begin to see the things that you value. They can begin to see how your lines are projected, the lines of your life are projected off of a different cornerstone than the lines of their life while the lines of their life may be projected off of success or vocation or family. The lines of your life are projected off of Christ, and they, can, they have enough window into your life to begin to see that. So you don't move away from people. You move toward people. You live your life among people. It gives them a window to see the character and conduct that God is producing on account of who you are and what he has done. And they begin to see that it's an attractive and yet simultaneously offensive life that you live. It's a, it's a simultaneously attractive and offensive. Notice what he says, live a beautiful life, one that's attractive to people that would draw people so that when they do what? This is crazy, right? You're going to live a beautiful, honorable, noble life and yet they're going to accuse you and they're going to persecute you and they're going to speak against you as evildoers. That's what he says in the text. So there'd be a simultaneous attractiveness about your life and an offensiveness about your life. And this is exactly what was taking place in the early church as well. In that same letter, the author goes on to say this. He says, speaking of Christians, he says, they marry like all other men and they beget children, but they do not cast away their offspring. They have their meals in common, but not their wives. They find themselves in the flesh, and yet they live not after the flesh. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, and they surpass the laws in their own lives. They love all men, and they are persecuted by all. They are ignored, and yet they are condemned. They are put to death, and yet they are endued with life. They are in beggary, and yet they make many rich. They are in want of 
of all things and yet abound in all things. They are dishonored and yet they are glorified in their dishonor. They are spoken evil of and yet they are vindicated. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they rejoice as if they were thereby quickened by life. War is waged against them as aliens by the Jews, and persecution is carried on against them by the Greeks. And yet those that hate them cannot tell the reason of their hostility. This is what was taking place in the early church. As Christians woke up to this identity as a chosen race, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people for God's own possession, and the shoulds began to flow out of the R's, and man, people looked at them and they go, we don't exactly even know how to classify these people anymore. We don't know what category to put them in, right? Because when you look at the way that they lived, when you look at the way that they lived, you go, man, there were some things that they did which makes makes you go, over here, over on the left-hand column, you got the conservatives. Over here on the right-hand column, you got the liberals. Some of the things that they were doing made them look incredibly conservative. And yet some of the things that they were doing made them look incredibly liberal in their day. How do you classify that? You can't classify that. They're aliens. (laughs) They must be from another planet. Because look at what it says. It says, though they marry and beget children like all of the men. Okay? So they have families, they raise families, and yet they do not cast away their offspring. What? You see, in their day, infanticide was a very common practice in the ancient world. And so if you, were, if you and, your, and your spouse became pregnant with a child, and you carried that child to term, and you delivered that child... Oftentimes in the ancient world, the desire was for a male child to carry on the lineage. And there are times, oftentimes, amongst the pagans, whenever they would give birth to a female child, they would take that child to the trash heap and they would leave it to die. It was infanticide. It wasn't the child they wanted. So they discard it like trash. And the early Christians... They married, they had families, they had children, and whenever the child came along, they kept boys and girls. In fact, they would, there, was, there were accounts recorded of them actually going to the trash piles and picking up some of these abandoned children and bringing them into their homes and raising them as their own. They shared all things in common. They shared all their meals in common. They sat down and shared the table together, but they didn't share their beds. You, know what he, you, know, you see what he says? They shared their table with everyone, but not their bed with everyone. They shared all their meals in common, but not their wives. There was a sexual ethic that was, that was woven through the fabric of this community of people in the early church that was incomprehensible. They were very hospitable with everything other than, you know what I'm saying? See, there was this, there was this weird dynamic about these people in the early church. They, they cared for the poor to such a degree that it cut into their lifestyle. Notice what he says. They are in beggary, and yet they make many rich. They are in want of all things, but they abandon all things. They're incredibly generous with their possessions and their resources and their finances and their time. They gave themselves away. And then people were just kind of scratching their heads. Whenever they were insulted, they responded with blessing. Whenever they were cursed, they responded with respect. Whenever they were beaten, they responded with forgiveness. When they were persecuted, they didn't run away to the hills, but they pressed further in. (laughs) 
makes you scratch your head and go, who in the world are these people? Because you can't classify them in the conservative category over here or in the liberal category over here. They're an altogether new kind of humanity being renewed and restored into the image of Christ. This is who they were. This is how they lived. And listen, if you and I, if you and I were to live like a missionary in our particular culture, there would be a, a simultaneous attractiveness and offensiveness about our lives. In the same way that Peter talks about here. Because there are some in Western individualistic culture, the one we live in. Listen, if you show up here and you care for the poor and you forgive those who wound you and you turn the other cheek, right? And you push deeply into social structures to help change those things. People are going to look at you and go, man, that's that liberal church over there on 66. And then if you show up in the same, simultaneously in the same conversation and you affirm a biblical sexual ethic and you affirm a biblical view of marriage between one man and one woman for one lifetime, they're going to go, oh, that's that conservative church over there on 66 that meets at Highview. But listen, if you take all these things together into one person and better yet into one people, they're going to go, we don't really know where, where they fall. They just follow Jesus. And their life looks a lot like his. Because they're living like a missionary among people. They have a window into your soul. And when they do, it repels some and draws others. Let me ask you this question. Is your life, number one, do, 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 do people outside the church have enough a window into your life to be able to see your character and conduct, to see the way you make decisions, to see the way you place your priorities, to see the things that you value? Are you living like a missionary, pushing into the lives of people around you? Do they have a window? And if they do, listen, let me ask you these two follow-up questions. Number one, is there an attractiveness about your life? Are some people drawn to you because of the things that you say, the things that you do? But simultaneously are some, and maybe even the same ones, offended by you because of some of the things that you say and some of the things that you do? Listen, some of us have lives and everybody look at us and they go, man, I'm so attracted and drawn to those people, right? Because they're so they're forgiving and they're so generous and they're so kind and they're so loving. Some people, some of you, all you know is the attractiveness side. Because you, you, when, when it comes to hard cultural biblical issues, you don't speak to those things. You just withdraw from the conversation. You ever been there before? Just kind of slid out of the conversation a little bit and let it kind of go on around you. You're just kind of listening in. I'm doing cultural research. But for some of us, the flip side is true. All people know about us is an offensiveness. Because, <laughs> man, we're like lobbing grenades at everyone who walks through the door. Right? I'm the truth police. And you, I can't let you even say anything that might be on the, 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 the fence right? without correcting you with 17 Bible verses. And we just push people away and push people away. And they see nothing attractive about our lives. Some of us, they see nothing attractive. Some of us, they see nothing offensive. If you lived as a missionary, they would see both. Because there would be a beauty to your life that drew some and repelled others. Have you ever noticed that there's something about people who live a life of integrity? 
Live a life of integrity. Like, here's who you are. Here's what you should do. Right? Part of the shoulds, being, being a consistent person across all platforms. Have you ever noticed there's something incredibly attractive about an individual like that, that you just feel drawn to them? Because you know they're going to give you the same person on Sunday morning as you would get on Friday night. He's <laughs> going to be the same person. Are you living like a missionary? Are you living as if there is more than this world, living like a missionary in this world? We still ain't done, so we got to move on. We're all, I promise we're almost done. Third thing that Peter tells us is this, and final, is this. That if you're going to live like a sojourner, not only do you live as if there is more than this world, right? Fighting against those over-desires of the flesh. And the way that you fight against them, listen, listen, some of you, this, this, this is going to be worth a trip this morning. The way that you fight against them is not by a list of do's and don'ts. This is how some of you have been trying to fight against passions of the flesh all of your life. But the way that you fight against them is by the tasting of a greater desire. Huh. There's something bigger that's growing in your heart than your desire for acceptance, your desire for intimacy, your desire for security, your desire for status. There's something bigger that you've tasted. It's kind of like tasting that bacon-wrapped filet from the finest steakhouse in all of Dallas. And then the hockey puck that you cooked on the grill at home last night. Okay? There's a difference between those two things. Right? And whenever you get a taste of that bacon wrap filet, man, it ruins your palate for everything else. That's why the psalmist says, taste and see the Lord is good. He's good, church. He's good. Are you living as if there's more than this world, but like a missionary in this world for, he says, the glory of God? For the glory of God. So that whenever they see your good works, they speak against you as evildoers, they may glorify him on the day of visitation. Listen, when Peter uses that word visitation, he, he's drawing on a very long uh, uh, history of how that word was used in the Bible. Whenever God showed up to visit, he showed up to visit in order to bless or to judge. And there's a sense in which whenever Christ returns at his second coming, he's going to do both. He's going to show up to bless and to judge. But whenever he, whenever he makes his appearance in the clouds part and Jesus comes back, Peter says, will your life have been a conduit through which God has worked to draw people to himself in such a way that whenever he returns, they're going to see the justice of his judgment and the goodness of his blessing, and they're going to cry out unto his glory. Will your life have been that kind of conduit through which God is working? As people have a window to your soul and they see you living as if there is more than what this world can offer. So that they get on their knees to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ as he returns on a white horse. All tatted up and ready to fight. To make war against those who would oppose him and to receive all those who would come under his just and righteous and good rule. Will they see him on his day of visitation and glorify him? That's the aim, right? That's the aim. We're not just trying to be good people for the sake of being good people. We're not just talking about the shoulds for the sake of the shoulds. We're talking about the shoulds because they come out of the R's for the glory of the Father. 
to the glory of God, because that's the ultimate aim of our lives. We've tasted and seen that he is good, and we want to see his glory. As the, as, as, the, as the Old Testament prophet says, cover the earth as the waters do the sea. There's a day that's coming when that's going to take place. And we're waiting for that day. And as we wait for that day, we want to see lots of other people there on their knees declaring the greatness, glory, majesty, and praise of this one who's been so generous and good and kind and just. And one of the ways that you live for the glory of God as a missionary in this world, like there is more than this world, one of the ways that you do that, to live for the glory of God and not your own glory, right? We're not about our own glory, about his glory. One of the ways that you do that. Like in, in English lit, right? Maybe in, in, in high school or in college, uh, your, your professor or your teacher, one of the things they begin to instruct you about in English literature is you begin to write essays and papers, um, you know, as you begin to write, one of the things that they were very, very clear about is that one of the things that you have to do if you're going to borrow material from someone else is what? You got to cite your source, right? Because if you don't cite your source, ultimately you're committing plagiarism. Okay, so you can borrow all these great thoughts and ideas and lines from someone else and you can write them into your essay, you can write them into your paper, your project, but you have to give credit for the one who actually did the work, right? Because you didn't do that work. It wasn't an original thought for you. So you have to cite your source who did the work. And if you and I are going to live for the glory of God, we have to learn to stop committing plagiarism against God. But we have to begin to cite our source. Because you're not the one doing the work. Who's doing the work in you? Who's doing the work through you? The very Holy Spirit that has come to take residence in your life and is active in the world, he is doing the work, not you. Are you citing your source? Here's what that looks like whenever somebody comes along and they go, man, I've got a window now into your life and I can see how you make decisions and I can see where you spend your money and I can see how you use your time and I can see how you give of yourself and I can see the values with which you live and the morals that you affirm. I see all these things and I can never be like you. I can never be like you. Listen, if you want to commit plagiarism against God, here's what you say. You probably go, you're probably right. I'm pretty good, ain't I? And listen, it may not be a prideful way in which you do it either like that. It may just be, well, everybody's kind of got their own strengths and everybody's got their own weaknesses. I'm going to be very humble. These are just things that I'm, you know, whatever, gifted at. But listen, if you're going to cite your source and people come along and they say, I can never be as generous as you. I can never be as chaste as you. I can never be as, 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 as focused singularly on this mission like you seem to be. I can never do that. If you cite your source, here's what you say. You say, there was a time in which I wasn't that way either. <laughs> there was a time in which I was, I was selfish. There was a time in which I was prideful. There was a time in which I was uh, all about me. But you know what? I met someone. I met someone. And his name is Jesus. And he's begun to do work in my life. And I don't take credit for that work. Because he's the one working. You just see the fruit of his work in my life. So I'm going to cite my source. Because I'm not going to take credit for these things that I, myself, in and of my own abilities, am not, I'm not doing these things. He's doing them. 
And as you begin to cite your source and give credit where credit is due, then ultimately you're taking that mirror of uh, the window as people see into your life is not for your glory. It becomes a mirror to reflect up to his. It becomes about his glory because he's the one doing the work through you. He's the one doing the work in you. So that whenever he returns to judge and to bless, there will be people who get on their knees to declare the praises of this great king who's coming to rule because you've lived for his glory and as a conduit for his work. Are you living like a sojourner? Or are you living as if this world is all there is and you have to taste of every experience before you die because you haven't tasted something better? And if you have, are you living among the Gentiles? Among, not withdrawn from them, among them, pressed in where they have a window to see this beautiful, simultaneously attractive and offensive life. If you're not offending anybody, then you're probably not living as a missionary. If you're not attracting anybody, then you're probably not living as a missionary. But if you're doing both, <laughs> are you citing your source? See, my hope for us as a church, part of my hope for us as a church, is that we be the kind of people that Peter writes about here. So that even when the world, listen, and we'll close with this, even when the world hates us, even when the world is offended by us, they would look at the church and go, that doesn't taste good to me, but I'm not really sure why. I'm not really sure why. Is that your life? I pray that it would be. Would you join me in that? Father, we come today confessing that we cannot live this kind of God-glorifying, people-loving, missionary kind of life that lives according to the values of another world in this one apart from you. God, we are a needy people. We are a needy people we know that you are sufficient to meet that need. God, and I know there are people in this room this morning. I know they are. Whose lives are being destroyed by inordinate desires. Father, I pray this morning they may cry out to you in repentance and dependence upon you to change. Father, I pray this morning that they would taste of Christ as the one who has made them, has made them a chosen people or chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. They would taste of him and see that he is good, that he is better than everything else that they could taste of in this life. Even in the song that we sing, that in all our sorrows, that in all our victories, that in all our comfort, that in all of our experiences, that in all the pleasurable things that we can encounter in this life, that they would know that Jesus is better because they taste of him and they've seen that he is good. 
Father, for those of us who have tasted, I pray that we would move out toward the world and not withdraw from it and not be a compound or a commune or a cult. But that we would be a missionary-hearted people who would live for your glory, always giving you the credit. So when the world looks at us, they scratch their heads and say, man, <laughs> part of that is really, really attractive and part of it is really, really offensive. And there's a part of me that has hostility towards them. I'm not even sure why. God, would you make Redeemer that kind of church? That kind of church that lives for your glory and their good. We pray these things in Jesus' name.